1: is now bleeding. It's bleeding badly. PR-wise, it's not looking good. The military pretty much runs Pakistan still.
2: But things have changed now because Imran Khan was actually elected. The result of these attacks is actually bringing the Pakistani army into a conflict with India that the Pakistani army may not actually want.
0: G'day. Welcome to this special edition of the National Security Podcast. This is a podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific region. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. In this special podcast, we are going to be looking at the current spike in armed conflict between India and Pakistan over the disputed regions of Jammu and Kashmir. Later in the podcast, I will be talking to Dr. Michael Cohen about the strategic overlay which involves nuclear weapons. Dr. Michael Cohen is my colleague here at the National Security College, and his expertise covers nuclear weapons proliferation, the Korean Peninsula, South Asia, deterrence and coercion, leaders, foreign policy decision making, and the US Australia alliance. But first, we will be speaking to Dr. Claude Rakazitz, who is an Honorary Associate Professor at the Asia-Pacific College of Diplomacy at the ANU. Claude comes to this discussion with almost 20 years of public service, which includes working at the Departments of Defence and Foreign Affairs and Trade, also with the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and the Office of National Assessments, which is Australia's principal analytical intelligence agency. He was also an advisor to a shadow federal minister for foreign affairs, and to a deputy Prime Minister of Australia. Claude's primary area of focus is Pakistan, which he has been looking at for over 30 years. Also, South and Central Asia the Middle East and Africa. He's joining us today to discuss the current spike in armed conflict between India and Pakistan. G'day, Claude. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. So let's get straight into it. The tension and conflict between India and Pakistan over the disputed regions of Kashmir and Jammu has been a permanent fixture of the region for many decades. In broad terms, can you please give us an idea of what the conflict is about and how we ended up where we are today?
1: Well, that's a very big question, and I'll try to summarize it in a few minutes. It really goes uh, right back to uh, partition days in 1947. And as you probably know, and as I'm sure all your uh, listeners do know as well, is that at partition, which was uh, probably uh, what well, was definitely the largest migration of people ever in the history of the world, when we had 7 million Muslim going one, one direction, about 5.8 million going, uh, Hindus and Sikhs going the other direction, there was this transfer of people and that included having about 1 million people dying in the process. So this was a highly traumatic situation for both countries. As part of the partition, it was agreed that there would be out of British India, there would come two countries. One was called Pakistan and the other one, India. At the time of partition, most of British India had been decided which way was going to go, either Pakistan or India. There there was one crucial area that hadn't been resolved and that was Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir as it's properly called. And what happened is that uh, the leader of um, the Muslim majority area, that is Kashmir, was a Hindu and he hadn't decided which way to jump. A number of Pashtun from Pakistan decided to help their brethren, uh, Muslim brethren in Kashmir. And they started uprising and uh, the Maharaja got worried and he requested Indian help. And the Indians said, sure, but you'll have to sign an instrument of accession with us before we will send in troops to help you. Part of the uprising, there was not only Pashtun, but there were also Pakistan military and Mufti pretending to be tribesmen. And so when the Indians came in, that's when really war started. And legally speaking, once they signed the uh, instrument of accession in October 1947, uh, Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir actually became part of India. That's There's no two ways about it. The problem is, of course, is that this was a Muslim majority area. And the idea in the partition plan was that all contiguous Muslim-majority areas would be part of Pakistan. It said that the word that was used was should be, but the Pakistanis always thought it was more like it had to be. And so it it should be, but it was never fulfilled, and that's why now Kashmir is where it is now. And that's why we have all the problems that, that had followed since then.
0: So this disagreement over the sovereignty of Kashmir and Jammu has continued since partition. What are the strategic imperatives that drive it forward now? Is is it geographic? Is it is there religious significance to that part of the region, um, or is it that the governments of either countries have staked the legitimacy on ownership of Kashmir and Jammu, and nationalism has kicked in, and now all off ramps to this conflict have been blocked. Well,
1: it, it's pretty much a mixed bag of all those things you've just mentioned. Um, for Pakistan, Kashmir is a very hot issue. a very hot issue because don't forget, Pakistan was created as a homeland for Muslims. And in many ways, uh, they felt that Kashmir, their brethren in Kashmir had been left behind. That's one thing. For many Muslim uh, leaders in in Pakistan um, since 1947, they felt that it's almost a must to be able to go and free them. And it's something that gives, of course, the military a lot of legitimacy as well, to be able to say, "Well, look, we need this, this very large army of about 700,000 people uh, to be able to defend ourselves against India, And we can talk about later about how many times I've actually gone to war over this piece of territory called Jammu and Kashmir. But, um, so that's, that's what it is. It's not so much religion. It is an element of that, but it's also strategic, because Kashmir is very strategic where it's located. And of course, India can control the waters that go down into the Punjab, which is, of course, the lifeline. For Pakistan, Wait,
0: When you say the area is strategic, is that just
1: because of the water? Is there Not also only, a... it's also because of if you have a map, if you look, uh, China is just right there as well. It's just next to, it also is just next to Afghanistan as well. And it's becoming even more strategic now because of uh, China's uh, one belt, one road, big, big project, which involves now the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which will go right through the Pakistan-controlled Kashmir. And if I may just... Spend a couple of minutes on this. In 19, once the Indian army went into Kashmir and then the, the Pakistani military got involved as well, so there was a war in 1948 49. Uh, what happened is eventually uh, there was a UN Security Council resolution, and don't forget everything was very different in those days. The UN was very new, and uh, they passed the a UN Security Council resolution uh, which demanded two things one, uh, stop the fighting, and the fighting where it stopped became the line of control. Okay, it was called something slightly different then, but it's not the line of control, which hasn't changed that much since then. That's where the two forces were, both militaries. And so what happened is India pretty much got about two-thirds of Kashmir and Pakistan had one-third, roughly. Okay, and that's where it is at now. And so what's happened, the second resolution was that there would have to be a referendum asking the people of Jammu and Kashmir which way they wanted to go. Do you want to go to Pakistan? Do you want to go to India? okay that that referendum never took place ever and as far as the indians are concerned they say look uh, the maharaja voted to decide to accede to, to to india and therefore uh pakistan they don't need to be there doesn't need to be a referendum asking the people what they want and in any case they say we have uh, elections on a regular basis uh, although Quite a number of them have been rigged, Uh, but because there are elections, that's pretty much the equivalent of a referendum, so there's no need for referendum. And they'll just say things have moved on. And that's where it is at now. So Pakistan still is pushing hard for the referendum, and the Indians are still saying no to that.
0: You've just mentioned that some of the elections in Kashmir and Jammu are rigged, I'm assuming for India's purposes. How would you characterize the administration of this
1: region? Is that administration one of the drivers of unrest? Absolutely, absolutely. Put your finger on it. Uh, What happened in 1987, uh, there was an election which was uh, blatantly rigged in in uh, Indian-administered Kashmir. And it was rigged, and as a result of that, the people in Kashmir were very, very disappointed, and they rose up. And it's basically for the last 30 years now, there's been a a sort of low-scale uprising, the, the fact that what 's happening in indian administered Kashmir really really upsets a lot of the pakistanis okay it 's also a way to justify as I mentioned before the military saying you know india we can 't trust them you know look at the way they repress the the uh, um, muslim brethren but what 's happened is that around the last twenty years or so, there are now basically two terrorist groups uh, that have been um, deeply involved in, uh, in what's happening uh, with the terrorist activity in Kashmir. One is, of course, e Tawba, that's the L-E-T, and the Josh E. mohammed two groups that are Pakistani-based. Now, there are different views about how much are they controlled by the Pakistani military. It, they're certainly influenced by the Pakistan military over them. Whether or not they always control them is another issue. One will never know. Okay, it's like anyone you run somebody, do you, cre- you, you create a monster and you don't always be able to uh, control them later on. But the fact of the matter, the repression and there's massive repression now happening in Kashmir uh, in India in Kashmir. The massive repression there by the security forces feeds the narrative in Pakistan. Can, sorry to interrupt when you say the repression um, what, what oh, is the, the nature of that repression? What actually happens? Oh, there's, uh, there's just you know thousands of people have been killed, and then they use live bullets on civilians. Right, so that, like, say, crowd control? Yeah, or crowd is, well, is, yeah. is,
0: is that a knock on the door in
1: the middle of the well, night? Well, there's, there's, there's that as well. There's a knock on the door. They, they go through, you know, neighborhoods and um, tell the women and the children to go in one corner and take away the, 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 the man, the young man, and sometimes you never see them again. Right. Thousands of them have been killed the f- the figures go into the 10 20 30 40,000 the figures vary but there is serious uh, repression happening in Kashmir you just have to look at uh, social media and uh, you know what's what's happening so there's, so the problem with that of course is also the so-called crowd control as you mentioned using live ammunition is not quite the right thing to use and a lot of people thousands have been blinded so because they use live ammunition and so on civilians so, so, this is a very bad, bad issue. And so, this has, of course, led to a lot of unhappiness amongst the Muslim population in Kashmir and understandably so. So, for example, going to what's happened now, the latest attack, uh, which was in uh, close to Sronagag in, uh, in Indian Kashmir, was done by a
0: local boy. We've, we've been watching over the past uh, week or so the tensions in the region giving way to actual armed conflict between Pakistan and India. Uh, this was triggered by an attack on Indian forces inside Indian-controlled Kashmir. What are the
1: defining features of the current violence and, and why has it occurred now? Now, there's no particular reason why it occurred now, but there is sort of like um – pressure because i said it's there've been more and more repression taking place now in in, in by the indian security against the, the muslim population there there was no particular reason that why it happened on the 14th of february the the leader of um, of the JEM, the, the jihadists, incidentally, uh, his nephew had been killed by the security forces, by Indian security forces, and he wanted revenge. And so uh, they got this local boy, they trained him, and he committed suicide, killing uh, almost 50. Uh, th- so, Burrus
0: So the, the fate of two nuclear-armed mm. countries is being
1: directed by someone yeah. over personal revenge? No, absolutely. Very very much so. And because this guy, this young man, was more more than happy, or, uh, more than willing to actually do that, uh, says a lot about how upset uh, people are in, in, in Kashmir and how it can be also exploited by the JEM as well. And so it's a very vicious circle. The more there is repression, the easier it is for the LET and the JEM to sell to the public in Pakistan that look we're doing this it's basically self defense and so that's a difficult one to sell to the outside world but that's what's what's happening and so what's happened is that so there's this attack in uh, Shonaga on the 14th of February and Looking, it's very, very important to remember that uh, Prime Minister Modi, Narendra Modi of uh, of India, is. In election mode. He has to call an election by April. The elections there take one month, there are so many people that have to go to the polls. And therefore, he has to be tough on Pakistan. He's that's what he sold his political aura is on being tough on Pakistan. Okay. There is no being nice to these guys. Okay. And so this was actually a very vicious attack, but it was, after all, against military and uh, you know paramilitary forces, wasn't civilians. Yeah, so the, the attack itself was a vehicle-borne explosive attack against Correct. a convoy
0: of buses of Indian paramilitary Correct. forces. Now, I just want to drop down the rabbit hole on yeah, that yeah, if I on. can. There is no commonly agreed-on definition of terrorism, but most of them would agree that um, it's an attack upon civilians to pressure the state for a political means and, and has the threats of following attacks. This was actually an attack against combat forces. So does that does it actually qualify for a terrorist attack if you look at the def- definition from that perspective
1: no no you're right it's, it's a very very good question Chris um, it's a difficult one uh, if you're Indian they'll say that that's just straight terrorism if you're Pakistan they'll say this uh, these are done by uh, you know martyrs and uh, and it's totally legitimate to, to go after the security forces that repress our brethren so is it terrorism well probably not as straightforward I mean I suppose you could have a spectrum uh, from uh, terrorism to self Defense and something in in the middle, but the fact is, uh, this was against national uh, against security forces, not civilians. Now yeah, having it was, said it was that, against combatants. Against combatants yeah. absolutely. And when you join a you know combat force, uh, you can expect well, you know people are going to aim for you. That's that's the bottom line. Now, now, having said that, the problem is it's easier than for people to say, well, this is a terrorist attack because JEM, of course, have got a very bad history and track record of killing a lot of civilians. And same thing with the LET who, you know, of course, as we know, did the Mumbai attack, terrorist attack. That's straight terrorist attack, Mumbai, 2008, 200 people dead. People just happen to be doing their thing, you know. So that's quite a different situation. But, but because these guys have done terrorist as in killing civilians, um, people don't often differentiate between the two. And the last thing the Indians would be doing saying "Oh, that, you know, it wasn't really a terrorist attack. I mean Modi will, you know, certainly wasn't going to give that one to Pakistan. So the fact is uh, Modi is in, uh, as I said, has is going to an election mode or is already in election mode very much so. And he has – I mean, everyone knew that if there was another terrorist attack, and let's just call it terrorist attack, Mm -hmm. um, he would have to uh – Retaliate somehow. He has to look tough. He, they felt he hadn't done enough with the Mumbai 2008, or he wasn't there. But previously, and he really had to go, and there's election coming up. And so, what did he do? He uh, right away. Everyone was expecting it. Pakistan was ready for retaliation, and so uh, they send out. Uh, and this was this is quite significant. They send out jets out there, Indian jets, and they bombed supposedly, uh, the JEM headquarters in Pakistan. In Pakistan proper, not, not this the disputed is, region. Absolutely, and this is really important in that there's some sort of strange understanding between Pakistan and India uh, that, look, w- whenever there's something to do with Kashmir, we'll just keep the fighting to the Kashmir area. So, And they seem both happy with that. But if they go – if there's any attack across international border that's basically anything south of Kashmir, that's Punjab and Sindh province, then you know – and if you read in the paper one day and you get up in the morning, you see, oh, my God, they've just crossed the border, you know there's big, big trouble. Okay, But what happened here is that they actually raided the JEM, they bombed it, which is just across into Pakistan proper, which is just outside the border of the – Kashmir, the Pakistan-controlled Kashmir. So it's just across it. Okay? it's it's not Punjab. So you know, and so that is the first time since nineteen seventy-one. Uh, but to set the record straight, the, this is the biggest fighting since nineteen ninety-nine, when there was a Kargil conflict between the two, again over Kashmir. But this is the first time since nineteen seventy-one that there was actually Indian dropping of bombs on on uh, on Pakistan proper. Now, they said they dropped the bombs, and within minutes, less than an hour, Indians said, we've killed 300 300 terrorists. That, that, that's some pretty amazing— Which uh, is unbelievable. I saw that. Wow, that's incredible. So did someone, an Indian, go out there and count the bodies? I don't think so. And it's only later on, the Indian generals admitted, well, we may not have killed 300. Well, maybe we didn't actually kill anyone. The Pakistanis weren't there. There was no one killed. You know that for sure? Well, that's what you hear from uh, – the, there's been no confirmation that by anyone except Indians that there were 300 killed. But even the Indians are, are backwheeling on that one, backtracking on that one. Absolutely. So it's uh, – no, I don't think it happened. So what, what do you think they bombed? Just they bombed, bombed just uh, as far as Pakistanis are concerned and people who live in their area. They, they went and, and checked it out. Trees. That's, so that's not looking good. The second thing that's not looking good for for India is that they then they had a dogfight uh, between jets, between Pakistan and India, mm. and the Indians uh, shot down two planes. One fell and one, one um, crashed on the Indian side and the other one crashed on the Pakistan side. And then the pilot had to bail out. Uh, the, the locals started beating him up, and there's footage is everywhere about that, about that, that poor pilot. Uh, mm-hmm. and so so pa-
0: Pakistan shot down two Indian planes. India claimed that it shot down a Pakistani plane as well. How, how, how do we but feel about that Apparently, that
1: again, that is not true because the footage that was shown was of a MiG that was uh, shut down, mm-hmm. not an F-16. So again, th- now this is a problem just as a footnote, is information – is, one, very fluid between those two countries. And the information you can get, basically, there are two sources, either the Pakistan or Indian governments, and I'm not sure if one can completely rely on either one of those two, or the the Twitter sphere and all that. And, again, is there exaggeration? Who's saying what? But there are some pretty good sources out there as well. And once you know them, you can start following them. The fact is this pilot was crashed, they the 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 locals started beating him up and it was thanks to the, the Pakistani military that they protected him and took him into custody. And if they hadn't, he would have been lynched. It's as simple as that. And then Imran Khan did the right thing, which was an incredible thing. He released him within two days. And um now admittedly, I'm sure he was put under a lot of pressure by uh his, and we can talk about that, the Americans, the Saudis, probably the Chinese, everyone saying, release him. Nevertheless, he could have said no, but he did release him. And that put the ball in Modi's uh court, basically, uh to do something reciprocal that showed that we want to de-escalate. Because I think that's important, as we know, both countries are, are nuclear powers, armed states. And... um uh, Imran Khan, who's only been elected less than a year ago, so he's still testing the waters. About and This was his big emergency, big crisis. Uh, I think he delivered because he's, he actually went on television and he told Prime Minister Modi, he said, look, we know we all have nuclear weapons. Let's be careful. Let's de-escalate. We cannot go. And I thought that showed a lot of statementship. And it made it life very difficult then for Modi to actually continue to be tough. So even after having released uh the pilot uh they still uh, Modi just didn 't stop the the bombings and there was a lot of artillery exchange over the weekend uh three people civilians and incidentally the bombing in in kashmir or across the line of control had absolutely no military value, just bombing villages on both sides, both of them were doing it, so there are three um Three civilians were killed on both sides, but now it seems to have quieted down.
0: So we're recording this podcast on Monday, 4th of March, and the the Indian pilot was released by the Pakistanis approximately 36 hours ago. So you're saying that at this point of time, we haven't seen any reciprocation from uh, Modi in terms of trying to dial this crisis
1: down. Well- well, maybe I suppose maybe it has dialed down a bit uh, because it sounds like the guns have gone silent in Kashmir on both sides, and that's it. But he hasn't responded at all to um, to Prime Minister Khan's uh, sort of offer to have talks and just say let's you know let's talk. Don't forget he made the same offer back when he was elected back in August last year, and the, there was no offer. The problem is Modi cannot. Except it cannot do this in the lead-up uh, in the in the lead-up to, to to the election. So uh, so the good news uh, it has dialed down, but uh, that, that's where it is at now.
0: Now, these types of large-scale regional conflicts like the one in Kashmir, especially when it's between nuclear actors like India and Pakistan, they don't occur in a vacuum. Historically, the US has played broker of peace when armed conflict has spiked. I think you mentioned the Kargil conflict recently, and that's one of the most well-known interventions by the US into the India-Pakistan conflict. China has also been Pakistan's long-term ally, and India has a history of being close with the Soviet Union and Russia. What are the roles of the other nations in this conflict, and how have they played into this current spiral of
1: events? Big question, big question. Um, look, you have to remember as well that um, that Pakistan when it was created uh, was uh, in, in two parts. It was East Pakistan and West Pakistan. And so uh, with all the, you know, the, the, the it was very weak to start with. It was separated by a thousand kilometers of not so friendly country called India. And so r- very soon it looked for allies to try to counter India because they knew it would probably be a difficult difficult relationship. And very soon it turned to the United States and entered a relationship with them for a very long time. The big difference, the big problem there that, that started quite soon in the relationship between Americans and, and the Pakistanis was that the Americans basically decided, sure, we'll, you know, enter some sort of relationship with the, the with Pakistan, brand new country, but they saw Pakistan as simply a chess, uh, a piece on the chessboard to counter the USSR, okay? They absolutely did not see uh, Pakistan or did not see Pakistan to or go into a relationship with Pakistan to help it against India. Absolutely not. Okay, even though they knew that India was sort of a socialist type government uh, friendly to the USSR, it was never going to be sort of be uh, for that. It was simply to, to counter USSR. And so the misperception or dif- difference in perception as to the reason for the for the relationship, that's what created a lot of friction very early on starting with 1965 when Pakistan and India went to war. Uh, the Americans stopped all weapons sales to both India and Pakistan. Of course, this hurt Pakistan more than India. Because India was getting its source elsewhere as well, and Pakistan wasn't. Same thing in 1962 when there was a war between India and China, in which China basically beat up on, on India. Uh, it gave weapons. The Americans and the UK gave weapons to to, to India. Again, uh, the Pakistanis just couldn't understand how this was possible. 1971, another war. Uh, same thing there. Although Nixon uh, liked Pakistan, he liked the general who was then running Pakistan, a chap by the name of General Yahya Khan. Um, and he liked him mainly because he was being helpful in opening up to China, the Americans, and all that. But again, they didn't do very much. They did send a, a battle group to Bay of Bengal to try to scare the Indians, but that didn't scare them at all. And of course, India then basically dismembered Pakistan to two. So th- there's all that bad blood between the Americans and 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 Pakistan. And of course, last year. President Trump decided that, look, uh, we're not getting enough out of Pakistan. We spent billions of dollars on these people. We're not giving any more. We're cutting off the $1 billion military aid, and that's it. So no more aid from them. So what does that mean? That means Pakistan has to look more and more to its other friend called China. And it's had a relationship with China pretty much since 19, the 1960s, early on, especially since sixty five, after the, the, the war with Pakistan when it wasn't happy with the United States behavior. And so China could see Pakistan as a way uh, – as a door, uh, a segue to the Muslim world uh, and at the same time, Pakistan could have a friend. That happened to be next door, and that relationship has really developed a lot since then. And now, to all intents and purposes, uh, Pakistan is absolutely in China's orbit. There is no two ways about it. Um, it's they've now, as you know, the, the China. China is going to invest something like fifty billion dollars worth of investment in building this, communi- this uh, China-Pakistan economic corridor that's going to link western china all the way down to guadar uh, on the indian ocean and and the nature of that link that's a roadway that's a railway it's, it's that's everything pipelines. it's a mixed bag it's a, exactly what you said trains roads there will be also new energy power plants things of all that sort of nature pipelines as well for gas and oil because what's going to happen as well is that uh, another big friend of pakistan's is of course saudi arabia uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, whom we all know for different reasons, uh, MBS, uh, just came to Pakistan and uh, signed off uh, on, on $20 billion worth of investment, which includes, uh, which is really big, includes building, developing the third largest. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking
0: for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: Okay. So, this Guado thing is going to get very big. And Guado is, of course, down on the Indian Ocean in the very difficult province of Balochistan, where there's been a lot of problems. So, they're going to build that there as well. And that's all going to dovetail very well with the whole Chinese thing. So, both of those countries, Saudi Arabia and China, are really very close allies uh, of Pakistan. Now, Pakistan likes China as well, not only because it also you know, brings investment and money and that sort of stuff, but also it counters India. And, by, and it also helps China because by propping up and helping the Pakistanis, the Chinese are forcing India and keeps them boxed in in South Asia. So they're forced to stay there and spend a lot of money, a lot of resource, a lot of men on their Western border. Yeah, it, it, it largely keeps
0: uh, India as a land warfare country Absolutely. rather than being able to put
1: its resources into the Indian Ocean, Absolutely. where China has a maritime interest. Exactly, exactly. So, everyone's happy, well, more or less, and uh, so that's that. And But there are a few friction points between China and Pakistan, and one of them is, of course, terrorism. Uh, as we know, in the Western province of China, um, there's a large Muslim population there, and the repression there, and it's more and more coming out, and that's... That's good news. Uh, the Muslim population there is being repressed, highly repressed, and but the interestingly, the Islamic world is turning a total blind eye on that, including, as a starter, Pakistan, because probably because it knows on which side its bread is buttered, okay? So it doesn't do anything about that. But there's also next door Afghanistan, and that's another big issue, as we all know. And uh, the big problem there is, of course, the United States wants to leave Afghanistan. We know that. They've been trying to leave for years now. And Trump wants to get out.
0: I actually saw that uh, there is a soldier now serving in Afghanistan who wasn't even born when that conflict started. That's how long that conflict yeah, has yeah, been well, that's, running that's for. That's a
1: very good point. Yeah, absolutely. That's crazy. And Trump wants to go out. And and so now they've started more or less started talks between Americans and the Taliban. Okay. That's big news, very big news. But that's only been possible because Pakistan has been willing to actually uh, assist, facilitate uh, these talks because the Taliban was for the longest time had, um, you know, um, safe havens in Pakistan, in the Western Province Pakistan, and could then just basically hide there, do some pa- a bit of terrorism in, in Afghanistan and jump back into Pakistan, in, into safe havens there. That's all changed. But uh, – and what's happened now, Pakistan is going to help because for various reasons, maybe Taliban's outlived its, its usefulness or maybe as well they're willing to help them or help the talks because they realize that at the end of the day, it looks like Taliban will be in power eventually. So, might will be friends with them as well and do it that way. And so, because they have to fac- – they're facilitating the talks with the Taliban, President Trump and his administration can't be too tough on Pakistan, on terrorism – it it did say things about, you know, stop doing this and you know, but at the same time, it can only go so far because it wants its help, you know. If Pakistan feels it's cornered, it may just say, you know what, I'm not going to help you anymore on the Taliban front. So it's a very very complicated situation there. So you've you've mentioned a number of things there
0: that. Um Pakistan has been a haven for fighters, terrorist groups, and so on, and Taliban acting in Afghanistan. You've also mentioned previously in the podcast that there are militants down in Balochistan, which is down in the south of Pakistan, and then we're essentially talking about the militant groups that are acting in Kashmir as well. There is a lot of instability radiating out of Pakistan in the shape of extremist actors, violent jihadis, and so on. Why is Pakistan such a hub for these kind of actors? Are they responsible for these actors or is it that Pakistan doesn't have a full control over its people
1: and its territories or are these kind of dynamics working with each other? Um, I think it's probably a mixed bag of everything. It's like anything in the world. You know, there's nothing black or, you know, white, black and white. But to try to answer, I think the whole, most of these terrorist groups, and let's just call them terrorist groups because a lot, most of their targets are, are, are civilians who just happen to do their thing and just get killed going to to the market or to the mosque the growth of jihadists really goes back to the time of uh, general Z Haq, who was one of the one of the Generals that decided to have another coup and to to run Pakistan in the 1970s and he firmly believed uh, that uh, Pakistan had lost its ways and its way about how it should be governed and so uh, democracy that was the end of that and he decided that we needed we they uh, Pakistan needed to have a bit of Islamization so they could see the true path and so he decided to do that, and he was in power for eleven years. But by um, promoting a a harsh version of Islam, into which, incidentally, um, Saudi Arabia pumped a lot of money into Pakistan in those days, Um, it dovetailed very nicely with all the – uh, Mujahideen, who were fighting the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. So they fought the Soviet Union from basically uh, December 1979 until 1989 for 10 years. And they were all based in the western province of, in those days, it was called NWFP. And they were all in Peshawar. That, and that, that's the northwest frontier Province. Exactly. Sorry, northwest frontier province. And so they were there. And, and the same thing happened again. They would go. Uh, they would do uh, training in Pakistan, then they'd go across across the board into uh, in, into Afghanistan, kill uh, Russians or Soviets uh, soldiers, and then they'd come back into Pakistan again. Safe havens, in a way. Okay. Now a lot of these people eventually, uh, eventually the, the USSR just gave up. It was the end of the USSR anyway. But these jihadists stayed around, and all their corrupt thinking about the role of islam and their 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 version of islam stayed around and started spreading and start spreading not only in NWFP in northwest frontier province but to the rest of the country and so they were there they've been there for 30 years spreading this and with also madrasas that are paid by the saudis and all all this has spread around and so this has then spawned a sort of Jihadist groups, including LET, JEM, because they have a cause. Because a lot of these people, the LET and JEM, other have also fought in, in, in Afghanistan and assisted the Taliban later on. And so all these groups talk to each other and um, they do, they, they, there's a lot of cross-fertilization in all these activity. The other thing is, of course, is that a lot of these groups turn as well against the Pakistani state. Because they felt that one minute, the military should not be friends, should not be allied with the Americans. And the Pakistanis, or Pakistan actually has been probably the biggest victim of terrorism. They've lost, again, the figures, difficult to tell, but figures vary between 50,000, 60,000 civilian dead due to home-based terrorists, what they call the Pakistan Taliban. And so... It took many, many years for the Pakistan army to finally fight them because for a long time they were supporting them because they could be useful to fight against uh, the Indians in Kashmir or to fight against uh, the the Russians. But times moved on and it took many years to finally go after them and terrorism now in Pakistan itself has really greatly reduced massively. It took a lot of time, uh, a lot of effort and mainly because the, the Pakistani military is really still today mainly geared to fight the Indian in a conventional war.
0: It, it's also, uh, if you're looking through areas like Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and Fatah and places like that, it's horrible geography to be fighting through, especially fighting
1: organizations that have been dug in and fighting out of there for decades absolutely, now. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's a beautiful country if you're into uh, into insurgency and, uh, and, that, and that's sort of very, very difficult and they weren't trained for it and they've lost Thousands of men. Uh, I've met quite a number of them. You know, lost limbs and God knows what. And so, a lot of people tend to forget that as well. How much they fall. But you know, they, this cause and effect. It's a very difficult one. But the bottom line is, there's still a lot of these guys hanging around, especially the LET and JEM, still causing, killing people. And as long as they're hanging around. Uh, and based in Pakistan, Pakistan's going to have a, a, a PR problem. Do do you not agree
0: with the claim that um, Lashkar-e-Taiba and Jaishi Mohammed specifically those groups are used as proxies by the Pakistani military to put pressure on India? Do you think that they they're, they're completely independent of the government, or do you see links there?
1: I oh, no, I'm sure there are links. Absolutely. The problem is, you know, it's like any you know when you're if you're you know you're running an agent, how much you actually control that agent? Uh, there are definitely links. Absolutely. Um, if If the Pakistan military wanted to, they could shut them down tomorrow now one word, the problem with that of course doing that is you start shutting them down you 've created a monster don 't forget uh, you shut them down there will be a backlash from their friends or whoever say one well, minute you do that and we'll start killing you uh, don 't forget these people are very nasty piece of work uh, they killed you know uh, they went into that that school in December 2015 in Pakistan and killed just kids, children. And that was a real turning point then for the military, saying, one minute, Um, killing children, that's just no-go area, especially a lot of these children were actually their children. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that's when there was a real turnaround. So they have to be very careful about, you know, shutting them down. But— at the same time, they, they are, they, they, it's a useful tool for them to have. So they're, they're playing both sides of the, the street, which is, is you know, not good. It's a very dangerous game. It's a very, very dangerous game. And, uh, and this is why, uh, and we discussed this a bit earlier, this is why the world's abhorrence of terrorism really at this point still trumps the repressing, repression that the Indians uh, impose or uh, dish out to the Kashmiris. But that may be changing. That the terrorist uh, uh, angle is still a a very negative angle for Pakistan, and there will be more and more pressure on Pakistan, as there should be, to shut down uh, those those terrorist groups. The problem the problem with doing that is, I think, and I think Imran Khan would like to do that too. Don't forget, of course, he's not the only one there. The military pretty much runs Pakistan still, but things have changed now because Imran Khan was actually elected. uh, fair and square. But before they would want to give away that special tool called these terrorists, they would want something in return. And the, I think the Indians, and it depends who's going to be in power, I'm not sure if Modi's actually going to win this election because uh, he comes out very poorly out of this fracas with the, with, the with the Pakistanis, is that they India is now bleeding, is bleeding badly. PR-wise, it's not looking good. And people are saying more and more the fact that a lot of people are getting repressed in Kashmir. They know there's a problem. And if both sides realize we have a problem here, let's talk. And there could be maybe a pro quo of some type about we stop supporting the jihadists here. We have a referendum there, something. But they need to talk because this cannot continue. And India will never be a great power as long as it keeps Uh, repressing the Kashmiris. Absolutely never. You don't
0: think it's possible that Modi could uh, flip things on its head and become the the person that solves the the
1: conflict in the north? Well, uh, he would have to first be re-elected and two... um I'm not sure if he could change his his, his spots because uh, you know he's not known. You know that that's not his thing. He, he doesn't particularly like Muslims. He doesn't particularly like Pakistan. He he came into power as the Hindu yeah, nationalist absolutely. leader, and so I don't see him delivering that. But having said that, you know we remember Nixon and the Communists and China, so things could happen. But there needs this just cannot continue. This has been going on for many many seventy years. Too many people suffering for no reason. But. Uh, you know, Kashmir is a very, very complicated situation. Um, it's not all Muslims. There are loads of Hindus there. There are also uh, Buddhists as well, and it's a it's a real, real mixed bag. It's a very complicated issue.
0: And, and that brings me to the final question for the pod. We we now see. Uh our region that Australia exists in as the Indo-Pacific region. And under that definition, what's happening in, in between India and Pakistan is relative to Australia's interests and our own national security. What would you say are the most important factors that the Australian national security policymakers need to consider in regards to this current round of, of conflict? And how do those considerations play into the way that Australia sees India and Pakistan relations as
1: a whole? Big question. Look... Um The first thing I would recommend, if I were advising the minister for foreign affairs uh, in Australia, would be keep the eye. I know that Pakistan and India uh, they're not in our immediate strategic interest. We know that, and that's probably why we, you probably uh, our policymakers have been took the eye off of that issue but we shouldn't at all because one the two nuclear states we, sh- keep, we must keep alert and and, and and keep abreast of the latest developments there the other thing is uh, because of one their the sizes the nukes that sort of terrorism and that sort of stuff but also all the money blood we've invested in, Pakistan, in Afghanistan. we shouldn't just walk away and, and forget about it all because it's not going to go away uh, far from it so we really need to keep focused on that What can we as Australians do? I mean, it would be good if we could, uh, uh, you know, if we could play through the Commonwealth maybe. I'm not sure. A good officer of the Commonwealth, whatever, to sit down and try to have the two talk to each other. We've we've got the right credentials. We get along with both countries. But... um, the problem is and this is what that's that's the big issue pakistan wants to wants to make kashmir a multilateral issue it wants to, the whole world to know about this india does not it says it's a domestic issue go away we have nothing to do with this and that's it what maybe countries like Australia could do because it is in the Indo-Pacific region is to try to make this an international issue and to put a bit more pressure on India and try to convince them that it's in their own interest to try to resolve one way or another Kashmir. Uh, it doesn't. Kashmir does not necessarily have to become an independent country. It could be have a much greater autonomy. There, there are way many many ways of trying to resolve it, but they have to sit down and, and talk. But they haven't done so for years and. Uh, I don't see it happening very too, too soon now.
0: Yes, it's one of the reasons why they call these conflicts intractable. Exactly. Dr. Claude Rakazitz, thanks very much for coming on and speaking to us in this special edition of the National Security Podcast. Thank you very much, Chris. It's my pleasure. And thanks very much to Dr. Claude Rakazitz for that discussion that really dived into the complexity of the relationship between the two countries, the complexity of the relationship between the Pakistani state and the militant actors within that country. Also, the geopolitical overlay of the region and the political complexity of India itself. And now we're going to speak to my colleague, Dr. Mike Cohen, about the strategic overlay and the influence of nuclear weapons in the relationship between these two countries. G'day Mike, welcome back to the National Security Podcast. Hey, Chris. Pleasure to be back. So, as you would have heard in the previous discussion with Claude, both India and Pakistan are nuclear-armed nations. I want to discuss how that overlays the current situation and the current conflict. But let's start off looking at the larger strategic concept and how, how nuclear weapons have influenced the relationship between India and Pakistan.
2: Yeah. So uh, although India and Pakistan both both tested nuclear weapons in 1998, they've actually had nuclear weapons for the best part of three decades now, since 1989, 1990. And so nuclear weapons have cast a long shadow over their relationship for the past three decades. They've probably also influenced a good part of their competition um, in the 80s and the late 70s. So after Pakistan lost the 1971 war and Bangladesh was born into existence, a good part of Pakistani grand strategy was never again. And so... I mean, g- strategically, the core issue between India and Pakistan is Kashmir. Um, I won't get into why that why that's the case, but Pakistan basically wanting a, re- a revision of the territorial status quo there and being too weak to achieve that against um, economically and militarily superior India, nuclear weapons have provided a sort of shield against which Pakistan can increase the cost of India's policy in Kashmir and make it hard for India retali- to retaliate to Pakistani China. Challenges. And so you see this most graphically in the 1990s and early 2000s, where uh, Pakistan sponsors a, quite, sponsors a quite extensive insurgency in that territory, which leads to the 1999 Karga war, and I would argue more dangerous crisis in uh, 2001, 2002. So ever since then, sort of the status quo has been Pakistan trying to... Revise the status quo below India's red line, and they've actually been quite successful at doing this because India hasn't really been able to deter these Pakistani challenges, and India signalling its resolve to actually stop these Pakistani challenges, which for the most part, they have not done very well. Do you think that the nuclear overlay or the
0: nuclear threat played into uh, the response to to the 2008 Mumbai attacks?
2: Yeah. So the Mumbai attacks from memory happened shortly after Musharraf had been had left the scene as both army general and and president, president. and it was replaced by I think Kayani um, as army general. What, what what complicates that and this is that the relationship between the groups that, that, that conduct these attacks and the Pakistani army itself and the Pakistani army's intelligence service is quite murky. So you'll have some saying that these groups are basically puppets of the Pakistani army and then others saying that these groups are sort of doing the Pakistani army's will but often are uh, distorting these missions long beyond what the Pakistani army actually wants them to do because often these the result of these attacks is actually bringing the Pakistani army into a conflict with India that the Pakistani army may not actually want. And in saying that,
0: how do you see that the nuclear sort of Damocles that hangs over the head of the whole subcontinent and the region, how has that influenced the current spike in armed
2: conflict that we've seen yeah, so for the last decade, um, relations between India and Pakistan in Kashmir have been much better than they were in the previous decade. So in the in the 90s and the aughts, things were very dangerous. You see an armed conflict and, and a quite serious crisis. But from a, from the mid aughts to 2015, 2016, things have been much, much better. Things change with um, an attack in 2016 and, and Modi authorizing a reprisal that I, th- I think there were 20 Indians killed and then a reprisal on some apparent Pakistani or some, some some ISI or Pakistani army bases, uh, and then most recently the attack that kills forty Indian troops, and then the retalii- and then the retaliation. What makes this most significant is that for the first time since nineteen seventy one, Indian aircraft actually flew into Pakistani airspace, and not in Pakistani Kashmir, but actually in Pakistan Pakistan proper. proper. Which is, I think, a signal to Indi- to the Pakistanis that the Indians are not going to take this lying down any longer. Um, so after uh, Mumbai, even before this in, t- in 2001, 2002, you have a series of very pr- high-profile attacks on um, in Indian territory. And the Indians, for a series of reasons, find it very hard to retaliate. So one, um, a lot of their troops are dispersed on the, on the other border and by the time they can mobilise the Pakistanis are ready and then two in the Mumbai attacks there's not really a lot that India can do because Pakistan has also got nuclear weapons so a lot of the things that India would do Pakistan can credibly threaten especially with, with Pakistan's tactical nuclear weapons to do things that India really doesn't want
0: So the, the, this goes to the, the, the issue that India
2: has a no first use policy but Pakistan does not is that correct? So they I think almost all nuclear powers are going to say they've got a nuclear no first use policy but I think the reality is that's probably a little bit more credible in the case of India than Pakistan. Isn't it that Pakistan doesn't
0: actually have that policy because India has a vastly superior conventional force? They could relatively easily launch a successful invasion
2: into Pakistan. In any conventional conflict, India, absent nuclear weapons, Mm. India wins both the size of its economy, the size of its military, and how much India invests in its military. Because of this, Pakistan has rational incentives to go nuclear and to go nuclear early that's to deter right. india from from uh, advancing any further mm-hmm. And
0: so has this been Pakistan's strategy to signal that it would move very quickly towards
2: a tactical nuclear strike to then deter any Indian conventional attack? Yeah. And you can think of, I mean, so you can think of the use of tactical nuclear weapons in a number of ways. You can think of a detonation in in a a hillside somewhere, uninhabited area, that's nonetheless a clear signal to the Indians that we mean business. You can also think about a tactical nuclear weapon on advancing Indian troop formations that that decimates the troops. But, But leaves the civilians unharmed, and which also is a clear signal that if you go any further, uh, we we can escalate.
0: How do you think the Indian attack on Pakistan proper will now change the way that India and the world sees Pakistan's strategy to deter
2: India's conventional attacks? I think Pakistan's strategy has been widely known for a while. And just a little bit on what you were saying before about no first use. Whilst um, most people that study nuclear weapons would say that you shouldn't take Pakistan nuclear no first use pledge terribly seriously, um, some scholars have argued that maybe we should think, th- think twice about India's no first use pledge as well, or at least that there's a number of signs that suggest that India might be ra- having, rather than a counter value policy, which is basically using nuclear weapons to, do, to uh, attack civilians, sent civilians in a crisis, they might be using these things to attack actually Pakistani nuclear weapons themselves, which is a bit different and some would argue much more escalatory. Uh, But in terms of how – the question was how we see this going forward.
0: Yeah. So how how do you think – now
2: that India actually
0: has attacked Pakistan proper – And uh, the the Pakistani response has been to down a jet that was arguably flying into their territory a few days later and then hand back the, the pilot. It's actually Pakistan that is showing to be trying to dial things back and have a much more measured response to not let things move out of control. That would seem to signal that Pakistan is almost giving up its instability strategy of if you have even an, if you signal a conventional attack on our property, we're going to respond disproportionately because you you are the superior force. And so this was the idea that uh, we'd have to fear Pakistan's nuclear response because that could be triggered so easily by an attack on Pakistan proper. We've now seen a, an attack on Pakistan proper, yet the response has been to dial things back.
2: Yeah, I think um, I'm not so sure that I'd fully agree with that. Insofar as the Indians could have gone much harder, and I think everyone realizes that if the Indians do go much harder. The Pakistanis can retaliate. I think one of the outcomes here is for Imran Khan to sort of come out as a peacemaker. By returning the pilot and, you know, de-escalating things, he puts the ball back in Modi's court. Um, and we hope that there'll be no, you can imagine that if there's another attack now, um, authorised by, you know, whatever the relationship is between the group and the Pakistani army, um, you can imagine that there'd be incentives for Modi to go go a good bit harder. Um, and you can you can think about what that one might be maybe actually targeting terrorist facilities or other targets further further beyond the beyond the border in Pakistan itself how pakistan would 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 respond to that would be a very interesting and Um, Worrying question. Yeah, we still have to work
0: out whether India actually attacked some uh, militant bases or just bombed a few uh,
2: patches of jungle in Pakistan. eh? I mean, certainly what Modi seems to have done is to signal to Pakistan that then that India will take this will not take these things lying down any longer. Thankfully, both sort of leaders have found an off-ramp in that Khan returned the Air Force pilot. The Indians sort of haven't ratcheted things up a bit yet, and the thing seems to have died down. So the Indians have said, look, we're not putting up with this. And the Pakistanis have said, look, you can respond, but we'll respond too. And so both sides lose, lose an aircraft. Um, but these things can go out of control very, very easily. I mean, what happens if... Um, suddenly, the Indians are, the Indian aircraft flying to Pakistani territory destroy what they think is some shacks in the middle of nowhere, but actually there's a nuclear weapon there and the Pakistanis suddenly think that the Indians are intentionally taking out Pakistan's nuclear weapons, suddenly you get very quick escalation. So these things have a tenet, these things are potentially able to spiral out of control very, very quickly.
0: And that, that was actually Khan's response as well. It was to remind everyone, look at the weapons that our two countries have. Do we really want to let it go there or even close to there? So as you said, Khan has been the, the voice of calmness and control and has arguably come out of this situation looking better than Modi, who is heading in towards an election, and he was elected previously based on his Hindu nationalist platform. So it will be very interesting to see where things go from here. We all cross our fingers that it will be peaceful and that tensions will dial down. Dr. Mike Calm, thanks very much for coming back on the National Security
2: Podcast. Always a pleasure, Chris. Thanks very much.
0: And thanks very much to Michael and Claude for joining us on the National Security Podcast today. This is a big issue that really brings up strong emotions and elicits strong responses from a lot of people in different parts of the world, given that it involves religion, it involves ethnicity, and it involves geopolitics as well. If you have any opinions on these issues or anything that we've discussed today, we definitely want to hear from you. No matter how strong your convictions are or what your thoughts are, we we are a very broad church and we really encourage your responses. And you can give those responses responses to us on twitter by hitting us up at apps policy forum or you can come into our facebook group at policy forum pod or you can send us an email to podcast at policyforum.net. and while you're at it if you could drop us a review or even a rating on whatever platform you pod with we'd greatly appreciate that thanks for joining us on the national security podcast we'll speak to you next time